If you want a deeper relationship with God, then learn to trust His promises. The Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins will help you understand how to count on God's promises. And it's yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point this month. When you give $60 or more, you'll receive the Promise Code set, which includes Esther's CD album, study guide, historical chart, and Bible promises at a glance booklet. Learn more and donate when you go to davidjeremiah.ca. Have you ever considered whether God's people should retaliate against their enemies? The answer from God's Word might just surprise you. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah returns to Esther for a look at the revenge taken by the Jews against their tormentors and shares four types of biblical retaliation. With the conclusion of his message, The Extermination of Enemies, here's David. Well, thank you for joining us. I hope you had a wonderful weekend, and now we're ready and poised for another week of study every day here on Turning Point. My privilege is I just don't know how I could be more excited than I am about this opportunity to sit here and teach the Word of God every day for those of you who are a part of the Turning Point listening family. During this month, we're making available a very, very important motivational book by O.S. Hawkins called The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim, plus Bible Promises at a Glance Booklet. 224 pages is this book, and it's a hardcover gift book. The front cover is actually padded. Each entry in the book contains a Bible promise and a reading that illuminates that promise and a prayer that will stay with you throughout your week, and then a code verse to memorize. And this book is yours for a gift of any amount to Turning Point. When you ask for this resource, we'll send it to you right away. Nothing gives me greater joy than to know books of this quality from my friend O.S. Hawkins are being sent to our listeners all over this country and in many places around the world. So, thank you for your gift, and take advantage of this resource to strengthen your own walk with the Lord. Here's part two of The Extermination of Enemies. Notice verse 11 through 14 in the ninth chapter. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. In other words, they told him how many had died. And the king said unto Esther the queen, the Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the palace and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? In other words, give me a report. Tell me how many people have died. I mean, the guy's got sort of a sadistic curiosity here. And then he says, and what is your petition? And it shall be granted thee. Or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. How many more people do you want to kill? And Esther said, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according to this day's decree and let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows and the king commanded it so to be done. And the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. Now here is Esther. She's already killed most of the leaders. And Mordecai's been a part of this. And the Jews have had a field day, open season, on all the anti-Semites in the Persian Empire. And it looks like the thing is over. And the king calls her in and says, hey, how's it going? We know how many has been killed in Shushan the palace, but give me a casualty report from the rest of the Persian Empire. And is there anything else I can do to help you? How many more do you want? You want to? And, and all Esther said, well, give us one more day and we can clean this thing up. And so they decreed it and gave 
the Jews another day and set them loose on the Persians another day and let them go out and wreak havoc upon the Persian haters of the Jews. And some folks have said, you know, this is hard to put together with the gracious, godly spirit of Esther that is so often portrayed in the personality of Esther as she's presented often in, in our study of her as a lady. Doesn't sound very ladylike, not very meek and, and lowly uh, for a woman to come back to the king and say, I've already killed 500, I want to kill some more. In fact, there's an interesting thing in secular history. It is a note from a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus that records that Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, when he returned home after his defeat of that Greek campaign I told you about in 480 BC, that his wife at that time, this is in secular history, that his wife at that time was a cold and vindictive queen. And of course that's a reference to Esther because when he came back from the war, Esther was the queen. And that would be, of course, an outsider's explanation of what's going on in the life of Esther, that she was cold and vindictive. She stepped in and put an end to Haman's activities. She was able to save her people from their enemies, and she went after the enemies and exterminated them. It is interesting to me that one of the reasons why there was such a thorough purging of these anti-Semites, and especially of the ten sons of Haman, is that there's a long-standing history of that family, as we traced early in this study that goes all the way back to the Amalekites. And if you have time sometime and you want to look this up, go back in your Bibles and read Exodus 17, 14 and Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. And as you study that, you will discover that there is a tremendous history of God's hatred for this particular people. Remember at the beginning of the book, that Haman is referred to as the Agagite. He is a descendant of the Amalek people who God hated because when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they came after the Israelites and they destroyed their women and their children. And God said that there would come a time in the future, you can read it in Deuteronomy, that he would literally destroy that people from all the face of the earth. And as far as we know, after Haman was killed, and hung on the gallows that had been built for Mordecai, and now all ten of his sons have been killed, and his posterity has been cut off. That is the end of the people of Amalek. Once and for all, the promise of God concerning that race, that people, has been kept. And it's over, and you will never hear of them again. The request for added revenge. Then let me ask you to notice, fifthly and finally in this regard, the restraint concerning the spoil. Now I want you to note in your Bibles, if you underline in your Bibles, you want to underline a phrase that appears three times in the ninth chapter. In verse 10, chapter 9 and verse 10, it says, And the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they, notice, but on the spoil laid they not their hand. Underline that phrase. On the spoil laid they not their hand. Jump down to verse 15 and notice, for the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day also of the month of Adair and slew 300 men at Shushan. Here's the phrase again. But on the prey or the spoil they laid not their hand. And then in verse 16, and the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest for their enemies and slew of their foes 70 and 5,000. Here's the phrase again. But they laid not their hands on the prey. 
Sometimes when you read this chapter, people say this is just unrestrained retaliation on the part of Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people. They have just pulled out all the stops and they're as bad as the Persians were. They're just out to totally destroy these people who are against them. And let me just remind you that that's not necessarily so. There is a measure of restraint even in what Esther and Mordecai did to the 75,000 people who were killed. Go back in the 8th chapter of your Bible and notice what it says in verse 11. Wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, now watch this, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them. Now here's what you need to watch carefully both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. So the decree that had been given through Mordecai and now had been given as permission to the Jewish people included three things. They could go and destroy the adults, they could destroy the children and the women, and they could take all of the spoil that they could gather from these people that they killed. But notice, Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people only did one of those three things. They killed the men. In every statistical report of casualties in the ninth chapter, it is the men who are reported as having been killed. Now, I know some may say, well, they stand for the whole, but there's no evidence in this chapter that I'm aware of that children or women were destroyed. And there is absolute proof positive three times in the chapter that they did not take any of that which they were permitted to take by the decree to themselves. There's no reason that I know of for that except that there was restraint on the part of these people in carrying out the preservation of the Jewish race within the Persian government. They retaliated, but not to the full extent of the law. Perhaps they remembered what happened with Saul and this same people, the Amalekites. Saul lost the kingship because he kept the spoil of the Amalekites. Remember that? And then he lied to God about it, and God took away his authority. So the story then is a story of retaliation and revenge and God turning the tables on a people that had set out to destroy his special race, the Jews. And as I read this chapter, you know, you read a chapter like this that is filled with history and you want to be faithful to what's going on in the chapter, but you ask yourself, what can I learn from this that will be of help to me now? Let me just ask you to watch three things as you reflect on this chapter. Number one, I think it's important for us to take note of the power of hatred and prejudice. It's important for us to take note as we read this chapter of the overwhelming power of hatred and prejudice. If you go back to the first of the book of Esther, the beginning of the book, you will not see any general hatred of the Jews in the early chapters. What you do see is the hatred of one man for one other man. Remember? Do you remember why Haman hated Mordecai? Because Mordecai, this stubborn Jew, wouldn't bow down before Haman now that he had been promoted to second in command. And so Haman's hatred of Mordecai was developed into a hatred not just for one man but for the whole race of men known as the Jews. And that hatred which was just barely observable in the heart of one man at the beginning of the book was fanned into a white hot heat and developed into a hatred not just on the part of Haman but on the part of much of the leadership of Persia for all of the Jewish people. 
And it grew and it grew until as we come to this ninth chapter, we're involved in a civil war between the Jews and the Persians. Hatred is a powerful force. As I've already mentioned, it is quite possible that it was a force inherited by Haman's ten sons. And that's the reason why God made sure that they were no longer able to perpetuate that hatred in the generation to come. But every once in a while, I hear things that make me aware of the fact that prejudice and hatred still lives, even in the hearts of some of God's people. May I say to you, there is no way to identify the power of hatred. Here in this book, we have a massive picture of what can happen when the hatred is allowed to blossom in the heart of one man and then envelop an entire nation. Do we need to go back and review the hatred that a man by the name of Hitler had for the Jews in a generation later on? Or the fear that promoted hatred in the heart of Herod when he tried to destroy all of the firstborn? Or to go back and concern ourselves with the hatred of Pharaoh and his concern? You just go back through the pages of the Word of God and you'll see that hatred left unchecked is a malignant cancer that ends up destroying everything that it touches. That's the first thing you see in this chapter that's so very clear. Notice, secondly, the place of retaliation. I want to give you just a couple little things to write down with regard to retaliation because sometimes when we read a story like this in the Old Testament, people come to me and say, you know, Pastor Jeremiah, that doesn't seem like that story has any place in a Christian environment. So let me just remind you that as you study the Bible, there are four levels of retaliation that you observe. You might want to just kind of write these down, and I'll give you some scriptures, and you can put those in your notes, and it will help you to see where you should place each of the books of the Bible and how you're to understand when you see retaliation in the Bible, how you understand it, because you need to put it in its right place. First of all, there was level number one we might call unlimited retaliation. That's what you see in the Old Testament before the giving of the law. For instance, in Genesis chapter 4, there is a man mentioned whose name is Lamech. And I want to read to you Genesis 4, 23 and 24. And listen to what it says in those two verses. I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech will be avenged 70 times seven which is a reference to unlimited vengeance. There were no restraints on it. If someone injured you, you could pull all the stops out and just totally destroy him. There were no limits on vengeance in the days before the law. It's interesting, by the way, when you read this passage to compare it to the discussion the Lord had with Peter about how many times should you be forgiven. Have you ever thought of that? And the Lord said, Peter, you should forgive 70 times seven, which is exactly the same number relating to Lamech in the Old Testament book of Genesis in terms of vengeance. That's not accidental in my estimation. So before the law, there was unlimited vengeance. Now, when the law came, you move to level number two, which is what we might call limited retaliation. Under the Mosaic law, retaliation was limited to the actual loss that was suffered. So you have in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 24, this little model for retaliation. An eye for an eye 
and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life. Here's some verses for you to write down. Exodus 21, 24, Deuteronomy 19. Well, let me just read what it says in Deuteronomy 19, verses 19 through 21. Then shall ye do unto him as he hath thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you, and those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Under the law, retaliation was limited to the offense. You could only retaliate in keeping with the damage that had been done to you. That's the way the whole Old Testament law is written. So you have before the law unlimited retaliation. Then under the law you have what we call limited retaliation. When you come to the New Testament, there's a third level of retaliation that is mentioned. Unlimited retaliation, limited retaliation, and in the New Testament, no retaliation. Listen to Romans 12, 19. These are the words of the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And this whole idea is that you simply refrain from any retaliation. You never hit back. You just avoid whatever has happened to you and go on as if it had never happened. That's a third possibility with regard to retaliation. And basically within the Christian community, especially as it deals with other believers, that's always to be at least what we do. We are never allowed the vengeance or retaliation against a brother within the Christian community that I'm aware of. We can allow the law to take its course in the hearts of people who have offended the law, but as personalities, we are not allowed to retaliate one against the other. But there's a fourth level of retaliation that goes even beyond this, and this is one that challenges me at the very core of my heart. And I've called this replaced retaliation. And I want to just remind you that the highest level of treating an enemy is the way in which Jesus taught us to treat an enemy. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, Jesus said what? Don't retaliate against your enemies. What? Love your enemies and do good to those who despitefully use you and pray for those who have offended you. That's what you call replaced retaliation. You don't retaliate. Watch this. You destroy the enemy. You say, wait a minute, pastor, that's not what it says. Oh, yes, it is. You destroy the enemy by making him your friend. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He can't be your enemy and your friend all at once. So you replace retaliation by praying for him, by doing good to him. Hopefully, in the process of doing that, he ceases to be your enemy and he becomes your friend. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 12, 17 through 21. Let me just read it to you and you listen. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, now watch this, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him a drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Now here's the principle. This is why I've called this replaced retaliation. Here's the principle. Be not overcome of evil, but 
overcome evil with good. And that's how we're to handle this in this generation. Are you with me? Four levels. Unlimited retaliation before the law. Limited retaliation under the law. No retaliation according to the principles of Christ. And replaced retaliation as the highest level of a way in which we deal with an enemy. And then the third thing I want you to watch very quickly is the protection and the promise of God that is evident in this ninth chapter. Isn't it interesting how God miraculously cared for the Jews? I'll tell you what I've been thinking about. It would be a wonderful thing to go through the Bible, just the Bible, not secular history, but just go through the Bible starting in the Old Testament and go through and check every close call of the Jewish population. The preservation of the Jewish nation is the most miraculous story you'll ever read apart from your redemption. How God just constantly seems to bring them to the very precipice of extermination. Sometimes just one person is left between life and death for the Jewish nation and in the right moment God comes through and preserves the nation and keeps it alive so that all the promises in the Old Testament which are given to the Jewish nation will ultimately be fulfilled. First of all, they were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, but there are still many promises that must be fulfilled. And I'll tell you one thing I'm sure of, people. I'm sure of that there's never going to be a day when the Jewish nation, when the nation of Israel is stamped out, when all the Jews are annihilated. It'll never happen. I can't promise you too much else about the world history, but I can promise you that. God says the Jews are the apple of his eye. <laughs> And that the sun will have to be taken out of orbit and the moon out of the sky before the Jews will ever be destroyed. I came across an article that summarizes this as we close that was found back in 1967 during the Six-Day War. And this was a reporter, a secular reporter, who wrote about this in Life magazine. And I think it just illustrates the preservation and protection of God. This is this reporter's description of what happened during the Six-Day War or during that wonderful time in the life of the people of Israel. Astounding is the only word for it. In 60 hours, the war that exploded upon the Middle East became a fact of history. Tiny Israel stood in the role of victor over surrounding Arab nations that had vowed to exterminate her. Middle Eastern alliances, balances of power, even political boundaries were of a new shape as though mutated by a biblical cataclysm. Seldom in military history has victory been so efficient or so visibly decisive in so short a span of time. So swiftly did Israel mount her assault that her adversaries were deprived of the means of winning almost before the world awakened to the fact that war was in process. The Israelis experienced an ecstasy which is given to few people in any generation to know, end of quote. That's a secular writer talking about what happened in the miraculous preservation of the Jewish people in 1967. But let me tell you something. That's the long history of this people. From their birth in Abraham and perpetuation in Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and down through the history to the very birth of Jesus himself and on into the future, God has promised that he has a plan for his people. We just have to marvel at the promises of God. He tells us that not one jot or tittle shall be destroyed until all of the law and word and promise of God has been fulfilled. 
We have a marvelous God who keeps promises. And the book of Esther is just another illustration. Jesus never fails. God can be trusted. He is a faithful God. He keeps his promises. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm encouraged myself just being reminded of this truth. And I've studied the history of Israel and it's one miraculous intervention after another and all the way to the ultimate um, future of this people of God. We have two days left in the study of of Esther. And um, this is a very interesting part of the conclusion of this book. It's called the Feast of Purim, still celebrated. And the reason for it is given to us in Esther chapter 9 and chapter 10. And uh, we'll be there tomorrow as we open our Bibles together. So, friends, we are promoting some things during this time that uh, we're very excited about. First of all, our cruise to Alaska, July the 15th through the 22nd. It's our annual conference cruise to many of the beautiful ports of Alaska. Juneau, Ketchikan, Sitka, uh, coming home, um, stopping in Vancouver. We will have a wonderful time with CBS sports analysts James Brown and Tony Dungy and Daniel Jeremiah from the NFL Network. All of my family will be there. We will have wonderful music and teaching from the Word of God. Get your reservation. They're flying out the door. We want you to be with us, and we'll see you next time right here on this good station. Today's message came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church, where Dr. David Jeremiah serves as senior pastor. To give us an update on how God is using this ministry, write to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098. Delta BC V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of the latest book from O.S. Hawkins, The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James Versions. Available in a variety of attractive cover options. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue Esther for such a time as this on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. After reading the Bible consistently nearly every day for more than 50 years, there are still times when I find myself saying, ouch, while reading. I'm sure you've had that experience. The Bible has a way of stepping on our toes, that is, correcting our thoughts or behavior on a regular basis. 
The famous missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, once said, If you have never been hurt by a word from God, it is probable that you have never heard God speak. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that Scripture teaches and instructs, but that it also corrects and reproves. Let it do its work in you. And this is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's words of correction on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.